0: Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. I'm Haley Wooden. And a little later on today, we're going to speak to Green Lines Technology CEO David Oliver, all about how Metro Vancouver residents can use new technology to become multimodal and even reduce emissions in a region where, honestly, you know, transportation networks, they often struggle with that first mile, last mile challenge.
1: And nearly three quarters of Canadian small business owners plan to exit their businesses over the next decade, but very few of them actually have a formal plan in place for doing so. Corinne Pullman, Senior Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, will discuss the latest survey and how businesses can ease what will be a $1.5 trillion transition.
0: Uh, For that, let's get to David Oliver. Joining us now, it's David Oliver, CEO of the Vancouver-based software company GreenLines Technology, the company's latest app known as CowLines. It officially launched in more than 60 cities this week in a bid to help commuters become more multimodal. David, thanks for joining us on the show today.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: So first up, what is the problem that you're trying to solve here?
2: Um, well, it's quite simple. Uh, think about how you get to, got to the office this morning. It uh, probably was a bad commute. Um, That happens to pretty much everyone uh, across all Europe in North America, not to mention many Asian cities. So it's a global problem, which the uh, commuting time is getting worse and worse. Uh, Cities are getting more polluted. So we're trying to fix that. We're trying to get uh, people options uh, to get to the office and get to work, get to the uh, school more easily.
0: So you guys have launched this Calines app, and it's a trip planning app that allows people to become more multimodal. How exactly does Cowlines work for anybody who's interested in picking it up, or I should say downloading it and using it on their, uh, say, smartphones?
2: Yeah, well, first, first thing is you need to go to the, the App Store, uh, download it, it's free. Um, and so once you download it, you'll open up and it will um, be very familiar. So you see a an, map. Uh, an uh, where you are, and you just type a destination, it will show you just like Google Maps, it will show you how to get there. The difference between Google Maps or any other apps that is out there and ours, is that uh, our app, uh, Cowlines, actually combines anything that exists in the city today. So in Vancouver, for example, we show you not only the public transit options, but also the mobile bikes, taxis, whenever we have Uber, we will be there, um, and, and it combines them. So if you're looking for the fastest way to the office, Because you're late to a meeting, it will show you anything that combines or not combines, but whatever it takes to get there first.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, no. I I was just going to mention that you brought up the Uber word, which uh, I don't know. It seems as if it's uh, something that we can't even talk about in Metro Vancouver. Uh, When that eventually hits uh, British Columbia, who knows when, do you think that that's going to have a big impact on the way that we approach our daily commute too?
2: Absolutely, I think uh, there's many studies where um, it's been demonstrated again and again that um, uh, combining public transit with other options, like uh, could be a bike sharing or could be a ride sharing, has a much bigger impact on reducing car usage in the cities. Uh, and the reason is very simple: if you think if you think that you live in, let's say, Lean Valley in the North Shore, and uh, you don't have any bus stop nearby, you might take an Uber to the bus stop, and it might take you maybe cost you two dollars to get there. It's another expense, of course, but uh, if that will save you driving to the downtown core or somewhere else, it might be a choice for you or a bike sharing program like Moby or many others that are popping up around the city. Um, So those options combined sometimes give you big, big benefits.
0: Well, for you, I'm wondering also about your inspiration for doing something like this. Uh, you guys are looking at reducing, say, carbon emissions, but uh, for you, were you just inspired like you're having way too many bad commutes on your way to work? You, you wanted to see if there's a way that you could reduce that. How did the idea come about here?
2: It's uh, Thank you for asking that one, that question. Um, actually, it came from my wife. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, the best ideas always comes from your partner. Sure. Um, so actually, she commutes to the North Shore. Um, and, you know, her commute, it is pretty bad both ways, whether you take public transit or uh, whether uh, you drive. You know, the bridges are not fun. So uh, she would come back every day complaining about the commute. She loves the jobs, but he, she hates the commute. Um, so she would come back every day and so uh, one day we had a conversation about, you know, all the options that you have in the city, all the car to go, all the bike share, all the taxis. And the question is obvious. Why can't we just have them in one place in the first, you know, in one app? And then why can we combine them? So you can actually plan your trip to the office or wherever you're going with everything that you have, right? Yeah. And so I think, and, and I think the, the big conversation here is that cities have changed so much in the last 10 years that the apps that we use to move around are still the same as 10 10 years ago. They haven't really changed dramatically, right? You think about Google Maps, the first Google Maps that showed up in your phone when you bought the first iPhone. Um, it was not very different from the Google Maps that you use today. So that is the fundamental problem that we have.
0: And with regards to kind of addressing how different cities are going to approach this, you guys obviously had to do a lot of development to make sure that this would be effective in more than 60 cities across the globe at this point. Did it teach you anything? Did you learn anything about how commuting is different, you know, say, city to city, or maybe what makes Vancouver stick out a little bit?
2: Um, actually, um, the, I found out one, one interesting thing about Vancouver. Um, uh, Vancouver has a lot of choices when it comes to moving around, and most people are completely unaware. So I'll give you a few numbers. Um, there's more than 70 companies that move people from A to B with commercial licenses to move people uh, in the city, in Metro Vancouver. 70 cities, 70 companies. Yeah, I didn't and know that. We estimate, yeah, we estimate that there's probably about 100 companies, but we couldn't really name them. So yeah. we, we only use 70. Um, but. Uh the important thing here is that if you go to the street level and yeah, you ask anybody uh how many companies do they know um, they're probably gonna name ten or twelve, and we actually went and asked uh, people so the problem is not choices really The problem is the awareness of those choices so the people is not aware of the choices that they currently have today so, I so guess therefore it... they'd rely rely on their private vehicles to move around
0: yeah. Which also means, if you actually have, say, a technology option such as an app that actually informs people of those choices, you figure that's—I don't know—maybe the commutes are going to get that much easier just because people have a wider breadth of knowledge moving forward.
2: Yeah, imagine if you had a super uh, smart assistant that could tell you everything that exists in the city. When do they leave? Where do they? You know, do you pick? Do they pick you up? How much it costs? How much emissions that they're going to produce when they move around? And you could combine all those things like a Super Kayak or Expedia, but for the city. Um, that's what Caroline does for you, right? So it, it, your commute could transform it radically, completely differently from what it is today because right now you probably rely, nine, 9 out of 10 people in Vancouver relies on cars to move around the city. Um, and that is, that is bad for everyone. Yeah. So I, we, uh,
0: yeah. So. Well, it's interesting because we are seeing at least a generational shift. You know, if you look at Millennials many of them just aren't driving cars at the same rate that, say, older generations are. A lot of them don't have their licenses. Uh, and that actually is kind of creating maybe more of a challenge with regards to that first mile, last mile problem that a lot of cities are trying to solve. How do you feel? figure that Cal lines can kind of work into the equation here with addressing that first mile, last mile challenge?
2: Um, I think it- if you think about looking around the city and the developments are happening, you see the bikes here, uh, bikes, but also there's many others in Richmond. There's U-Bicycles U- the and the and cities. There's drop bikes at UBC. There's a VMO coming up uh, with a very cool uh, tricycles uh, that are covered, that electric. Um, there is the on-demand bus coming from Surrey to UBC that uh, pick you up, uh, a bus that picks you up, right? It's a private company. Mm-hmm. So all these services are the first mile, last mile um, providers. The the main issue that we f- we see with people that talk to us and we, we, we communicate with is that they they were not aware of them in the first place. They didn't know they existed and how much they cost and where they are, right? So by combining them with the TransLink or the busy transit system, you immediately show them that there's a possibility of dropping off from the bus and then taking something else that would take you to the office or to school much faster than otherwise you would be able to do that, right? Of course. Um, so, so the problem is that because people is not aware of it, they just decide, you know what, uh, they pick up Google maps. They see that it's going to take an hour to get there. They say, you know what, I'm going to drive because it's 25 minutes, right? Yeah. So the, if you show them that the community is going to be instead of one hour, maybe 45 minutes, maybe 30, maybe 45, maybe 40, then, then there's choices. There's an opportunity for some people to drop their cars and then some, use something that's better. Okay. Well,
0: the other thing that I'm very curious about, and as we wrap up here, tell me a little bit about maybe what you're able to do with a lot of the data that you guys are collecting. You're able to kind of get an insight into how people are going about their commutes. Are you able to use that data uh, for anything?
2: Um, Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is that we collect data, but it's uh, anonymized uh, and aggregated data. And that is uh, very important to to us Mm -hmm. because uh, we don't want to share or sell any profile data. So we don't want to know who's that person. right? That's very, very important. And we obviously comply with all the Canadian and international laws and that. But uh, the data we collect, uh, which is anonymized and aggregated, we can actually do a lot of things. But one of the things we want to do is uh, share that data back to the governments so they can make actually better decisions when it comes to mobility and transportation in the city. Because we find out that, uh, we talked to many governments around the, the region, and, and some of them said, yeah, we would love to have that data, but right now, if we want to go and buy some of that data somewhere, it's really expensive, or the data is not available. So we said, you know what, uh, we have an opportunity here where we have door-to-door multimodal data not only on that mobility piece, but also the cost, the spent of money that people actually spend moving around, but also the CO2 emissions. That is very important today. Um, so we can actually have that data and give it back to the governments at no cost. So they, they can actually make those decisions, right? So we plan to do that, and we've been talking to a number of governments.
0: Excellent. Well, so, David, if anybody wants to find out more information, uh, what's the best way to do that if they want to find out more about Cowlines,
2: the app? Well, they can go to carolines.com, that's a website, or just download from the App Store, and it's free.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, David, thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's David Oliver, CEO of Green Lines Technology. Stay with us, my colleague here at Business in Vancouver, Haley Wooden. She's going to join us next to speak to Corinne Polman. She's Senior Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business.
1: Nearly three-quarters of small business owners plan on exiting their business in the next decade. That means a trillion and a half dollars in assets will change hands from one generation of owners to the next over the next 10 years. It's a staggering number, and a new survey from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business reveals that most owners do not have a formal plan in place to ease that transition. I have on the line with me from Ottawa, Corinne Pullman. She is Senior Vice President at CFIB. Thanks for coming on.
3: Uh, thanks for having me.
1: I think this is really an incredible number. I mean, Canada's GDP last year was around $1.7 trillion, to put that number into some context. And I want to start with getting what you think the key implications are of an asset transfer
3: this big. Well, uh, they're significant, right? When you think about that, uh, that amount of money being transferred from one generation to the next, thats uh, and if, if it is not done successfully, that could potentially have implications for jobs. It could have implications for local communities that depend on those jobs and those little businesses or small businesses that are not successfully transferred to the next generation. So there's lots of implications to this if we don't get it right. I mean, obviously some will you know, be more successful than others, but we need to do everything we can to make sure that that transition and happens as smoothly as we can so that we can continue to grow those businesses in communities right across Canada.
1: Of course, and to drill down on that a little bit further, I mean, would, would the fear be that maybe the transition is mismanaged so businesses close or people are let go? What are some of the more specific instances we could see if this isn't handled as smoothly as it could be?
3: Yeah, so one of the biggest challenges uh, those business owners face that are looking to uh, get out of their business is finding a buyer or a successor to that business. So, mm not being able to find somebody who can take over your business is probably the biggest risk. And that's the number one barrier that uh, business owners told us that they face in trying to figure out how to pass their business on to the next generation. So it's really about finding the people that are willing to take over these businesses. And um, I think that we need to kind of do some work in terms of encouraging many more people to think about taking over businesses, not just starting businesses, because often I think when people think about becoming an entrepreneur and they think about starting their business from scratch, but in fact, there's lots of great businesses out there that you can just take over and you can hit the ground running to some degree and then learn from the people that have been growing that business over years. Um, We've also seen that there's much more success uh, with businesses who um, have a good succession plan in place. In fact, that the people that take over the business have been shown to often be able to grow the business even more, add more employees, add more products and services, because then they bring their own sort of um, perspective to that particular business.
1: Exactly. And if if we were to look at this from potential buyers' perspectives, I have to imagine one of the things they look for are are contracts in place? Is there a succession plan? Can the business thrive with the person who is now retiring? That seems to be a key part of what you'd look for when considering making a purchase.
3: Absolutely true. So and and that's why you need some good advice while you're going through this process, both for the buyer and the seller, because those are the key things. You know, what is the business value at value at. That's a big one that sometimes can be a stumbling block for folks. Um, what is the role of the current owner? How do you make sure that, that if the business is highly dependent on the owner, how do you make sure that there's some mentorship and transition that happens over the years to make sure that that, that dependence becomes less and less? Um, there's lots of factors like that that have to be considered. You know, um, So I think those are important things that often somebody outside of the business can help business owners sort of walk through in order to be able to really successfully transition the business.
1: It's clear there are benefits to having a plan, but in the, in the survey results, it shows about half of business owners don't have any kind of succession plan in place and about 8% have a formal written down firm plan hammered out. Yeah. Why do you think there's such a gap there between the number of businesses that want to sell and the ones that have actually planned for a sale?
3: Well, I think there's a number of factors. One, they're just really busy. Um, when yeah. you're running a business, you're basically running at 24 seven and to find the time to set aside, to think about these things can be um, daunting. Uh, secondly, I think sometimes if you're, even if you're prepared to do that, you just don't even know where to start. Like what, what do I do? What do I, how do I start this process? And I think there's a lot of work that could be done by groups like us and others out there to give more guidance on what you need to do in terms of first steps, because it is a bit overwhelming. And I think too often, of course, that business owners think, okay, yeah, that's down the line. It's down the line. It's down the line. And then, you know, (laughs) suddenly you're within a year away and it's like, wow, I better start thinking about this. So making sure that um, they take the time to think about what that looks like. And that's why I think so many have an informal plan in their heads. Um, And that's about half of them that are out there that are 40% that's in the survey said that they have an informal plan. So it's really just making sure that you have crossed the T's and dotted the I's in making that transition. So, um, and I think sometimes when it's going to a family member, they may not feel that they need to have as formal a plan, but even there, you want to make sure that you're communicating effectively, that everybody on both sides understand what's expected of them. Because uh, sometimes I think we don't necessarily always communicate as well as we could with our own family members, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then we do with strangers. So uh, those are all important things that, uh, you know, you can certainly get outside advice to help you with.
1: Can help maybe avoid some strife
3: (laughs) if you haven't done (laughs) on paper. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly.
1: What would you say are some of the other considerations that need to be factored in when considering either selling to a family member or transferring an asset like a business to a family member?
3: Well, certainly one of the things that uh, we're looking to government to fix is some of the tax implications. So right now, um, unfortunately, when you want to sell your business to a family member, you actually pay more taxes than if you sell it to a third party or a stranger.
1: Mm. And
3: it's a bit of an anomaly in the tax system that I think needs to be fixed and actually ends up discouraging folks from actually selling a family business to a family member. And why that's important is because For many of these business owners that are exiting their business, 80% of them, it's because they're planning to retire. And really, it's the selling of their business and their life and access to what we call the lifetime capital gains exemption that allows them to potentially fund their own retirement. So if they have to pay more in taxes, because they're selling to a family member, it just sort of reduces um, what they're able to sort of keep in their retirement years. Um, Because many small, you know, you have to remember, small business owners don't have pension plans. Um, Often, it's difficult to build up RSps because you pay yourself in dividend, not in salary. So that becomes the key source of retirement income. So we need to make sure we fix that when it comes to the family businesses.
1: Mm -hmm. And another factor, and you alluded to it before, would be demand. If we have so many businesses on the market, a lot of people looking to exit their Mm -hmm. small business, so what are some of the concerns there? What are you maybe coaching small business owners on? Because there might be a lot of competition for a a smaller Um, pool of people buying.
3: Um, So we'd be coaching them on, you know, really making sure that you understand uh, what you want to do with your business sitting with an advisor, we can't, uh, you know, we can't really understate that or overstate <laughs> that, I should say. Um, and, you know, we, we, we're we encouraging folks that do this kind of thing, that help advise people on this to make sure that when they do that, they provide um, services and fees in a way that are reflect the complexity of the business. Because often these services can be very expensive and we want to make sure that we're not neglecting those smaller companies that, May only have three or five employees and are maybe not super complex, but they need some assistance on this particular transfer as well, right? So making sure that you're not charging them you know, $25,000 to help with this because then they're not going to go forward. So we need to make sure that, that, you know, even in the advisory stage that we have something that better reflects what it is that they're helping them to do, even how two templates um, could be put together that sort of deal with very common types of um, problems that kind of come up during a succession process would be helpful um, so so those, those kinds of things, I think, is what we would certainly encourage business owners and their successors to potentially look at, right, to really understand what's involved. Because while there are certain tax and legal implications and that's where the advice can come, there's also sometimes, you know, other things like the business plan and what that actually looked like and how do you communicate it and making sure you're bringing a successor in early when, once you've identified them uh, into the planning process is also very important.
1: Mhm. I have a feeling the answer to this might be it's never too early, but realistically for some of the businesses who maybe don't have a plan and there's a number of them out there, how much time should they put between coming up with a plan and then and then maybe looking at a at a sale from a buyer's perspective would they consider maybe a a timeline to a succession?
3: Yeah, and that's, you know, I think it probably depends on every business. I mean, obviously we encourage sellers to Think about this well in advance. You know, five years in advance would be probably uh, adequate. Um, From a buyer perspective, it may be quite different, especially if you're, um, you know, uh, somebody you don't know and you're purchasing it from because you, you don't really know what's available until there's a, you know, the buyer has gotten to a certain point that they're ready to kind of get themselves out on the market. Right. So, I mean, definitely, I'd say you know, five years is a good time frame to at least start thinking about the process, especially if you've identified a successor and you start bringing them into the business because there's, I think it's really important if you. Can have that two or three year sort of mentorship program where the owner who maybe built the business can really sort of provide that mentorship and guidance to the new owner as to how things worked for them um, and then sort of pull themselves out gradually.
1: A lot to consider, Corinne. I want to thank you for coming on the show to talk about this.
3: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That's Corinne Pullman, Senior Vice President at the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The survey and the report that features its highlights is called Getting the Transition Right. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Share our show on social media. Listen to episodes and of course, read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.